welcome to Season 3, Episode 8 of Professors in Rooms Getting Coffee with Drs. Justin Winsenberg and Stephen Jones. In this podcast, we look to explore truth, beauty, wisdom, and goodness at the intersection of faith and scholarship. Today, we jump back into a conversation about Justin's dissertation. In this series, we consider his research methods, which I found really interesting. Today, we discuss understanding and interpreting author intent in biblical writings through understanding the implied versus the empirical author. But first, here are our highlights, lowlights, and insights for the week. Have you have you had any good coffee lately? I have had some good coffee recently. There is so in our neighborhood there is a a market. Um, mm. You know, different vendors come in, and there's a. a little plaza that they sell on uh, five days a week. And it's not the same vendors every day. Like Tuesday is a big day and Friday is a big day, but many days there's a guy with a coffee cart there that he like bicycles mm. in with. And nice. it's some of the best coffee I've had uh, in Berlin. I, I would say it probably is the best coffee I've had in Berlin. How is he making it? I don't know. He's just got a little machine there, a little espresso machine there on the back of the oh, cart. Nice. And yeah. You know, it's, it's like a cart with a canopy on it. And uh, yeah. So the other day we had a really nice warm day. And so Jenny and I walked down and uh, I got a flat white, which I think I've mentioned before. I really like, and yeah, Jenny got some uh, ice cream cones. And so we had ice cream and coffee and nice. it was very nice. How about That's you? Great. Any good coffee recently? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'll be honest. Um, I think all coffee is good coffee. Really. I, I am very not picky. Uh, and, oh, okay. Actually I will bring up a, a good cup that I had that that's not actually good, but, but heartwarming. Yeah. And that is, uh, we have this diner in Hopkins, uh, where I live, which is, uh, been there for ages, hoagies it's called. And it's, it's like a greasy spoon where you get How is it on the, standard the main street there. Or? Yeah. Right on main street. Nice. But, uh, it used to be cash or check only. Now apparently they take credit cards, but you can, you can get out of there with a full breakfast for like $6 and 50 cents. Yeah. In fact, uh, a buddy and I went there once and we saw a guy sitting next to us. And when he left, uh, he left like a $2 tip. Mm -hmm. And we were like, Oh my goodness, this guy is really cheap. And then my buddy just took a quick glance at his bill and it was like $4 and 50 It was a good tip. We were like, well, there, that, that explains it. That's so anyhow, uh, they, they have, they just bring out the coffee in the coffee pots and you pour it in your cup yeah, yeah. and it's nothing fancy. It has to be like Folgers, uh, which if I were to make at home, I think I probably wouldn't enjoy. But for some reason at the diner, it just I, does the yeah. trick. I know what you mean. It's like if it were, yeah, if it were my own coffee or if I were at a coffee shop and got that coffee, I'd be pretty disappointed. But for mm -hmm. some reason in a diner, that kind of coffee is good. Yeah. Although I will say one other thing I've noticed, I don't know if this is new. Maybe it's just never been on my radar, but all these coffee shops in the area, Dunn Brothers, Caribou, Starbucks, mm -hmm. all the major players, they, they now have pistachio drinks. Pistachio uh, drinks. I mean, I've heard of pistachio ice cream, but there's pistachio drinks now. Oh, yeah. Like you can get like a frappuccino with pistachio in it or, or a pistachio latte. And I, I didn't get any, I got like a frappuccino style thing, which is a blended iced thing uh -huh. that they, they then put pistachio in. And I, it was actually quite good. I, it was, I wasn't expecting it, it but it, uh, yeah. 
I don't know if that's common or if that's just kind of a seasonal thing for them or what. Interesting. Yeah. Well, next time I'm back, I'll have to try it if they're still doing it. Yeah, for sure. Huh. Well, what's a highlight been for you this week? Uh, you know, we've decided it's time around our house to, uh, we have one bathroom in our house, which we or is not a complaint. Um, but as the kids get older, it has mm-hmm. been somewhat challenging. And so I think we're about ready to uh, put another bathroom in and we're hoping to extend our, our bedroom upstairs to put a dormer in essentially, oh, which nice. is like tearing yeah. off part of the roof, you know, and it, it, it's kind of exciting to think about. So we're kind of in the, in the final phases of figuring out the details of that. Uh, they're not going to get started on it here right away, but the hope is that when we're, when we're away this summer for a bit that they might work on it then. How about for you? Uh, I got to go to a movie for the first time since I've been here um, on Friday night. And that was a lot of fun. It was the new Batman uh, and I Mm. enjoyed it. I mean, it's not exactly a fun movie. It's kind (laughs) of dark. Yeah, it is. It it is literally dark and it's, uh, you know, and it feels dark. Yeah. And it doesn't really let up. It's pretty dark the whole way through, Um, but I enjoyed it. And, uh, and then we got a burger afterwards. There was, there's a uh, five guys and uh, five guys. There is a five guys. here. Yeah. And, uh, I, I've, I've avoided, and and the movie was in English too, which was nice. (laughs) And so, yeah, I've avoided doing that because I thought, well, sometime when I'm having kind of a, a rough time, that's the right time to go to a movie and to get a, a a familiar burger and oh man, that burger tasted so good. So. So was it called five guys or is it in Deutsch? I know it's called five guys. It's yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. Well, do you know the translation would be? I'm putting you on the spot here with your language learning. Yeah, I think it'd be like Fünf Kella or something. But all right, <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to I'll have to look that up and make sure I'm not cussing or something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so what's a, what's a low light been for you? Well, yeah, I I think uh, I I don't know even how much I can go into it yet just emotionally. But, um, also on Friday, I found out that uh, a friend of mine uh, had died. Um, and I only had about maybe, a, just barely a day's notice that he wasn't doing well. Uh, he'd had some health problems for a long time. Um, but I didn't realize it was anywhere near that, uh, imminent. And so, yeah, I think, um, He's a a couple of years younger than me, and uh, yeah, somebody I've worked with quite a while. We'll I think we'll probably do a, a special episode uh, in a little bit to commemorate him. But uh, yeah, I, I think uh, one of the things that is really noticeable to me about that is just the the distance. You know, not being able to mourn with people who yeah. uh, are also mourning, um, other than my wife, of course. Uh, yeah. So I think that, yeah, definitely my low light for this week. Yeah. I kind of wondered, you know, what it might be like for you. This has got to be a little different. Uh, I mean, not that you were prox- proximity wise that close uh, if you were here back in the States and Minnesota, right. yep. but just being, being overseas, has that experience been, uh, been different for you? Yeah. I mean, like, so it's not even a question of trying to get to the funeral. And I think if I, if I were in the U S I would, uh, strongly consider it. Um, mm. and yeah. And then even, you know, other people in the Minnesota area who also knew him that I might be able to get together with and, 
Uh, yeah. you, know, you know, there's just something about talking back through your experiences with somebody and remembering yeah, yeah. who they were in your life. And, um, you know, we've got good colleagues and teammates here, uh, but nobody who has a shared history with, uh, with my friend. So, yeah. 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 How about you? What's a low light been? Um, well, you know, I, 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 not, not quite in the same vein as what you'd mentioned. Um, and, and I think since you told me about what happened with your friend, I've been feeling for you as well. And for, uh, for the folks that we know that know him and, and thinking about his kids and family as well. But, uh, uh, but other than that, we, we just keep getting these bouts around our house of the kids being sick, which, mm. uh, I don't know. No, nobody really tells you before you have kids, like how, when your kids are young, how hard it's going to be. And, and I'm not just saying for us, I mean, it's hard for the, the kids too, but man, oh man, like it, it's not fun having kids that are sick. And it, sometimes it just keeps going, doesn't it? Oh, and it spreads. And the problem is when you have more than one kid, it can go from one to the next and, mm-hmm. and then it can just, it can be a couple of weeks and, and the other thing is, is nobody really prepares you for the idea of, yeah, you're going to have to miss a week of work right, uh, right? just because your kid can't go to school or go to daycare. And um, now my, my wife has been the one who has carried a lot of that load and she's done such a fantastic job of, of that when we need it. Um, well, and, and I'm, I've been willing to do it too. And I have some, um, but, but my wife has sick days and, yeah. and in academia, there's there, no there's such not thing really as thing sick like days. That. Yeah. that doesn't mean you can't miss, you know, I think what happens, you know, we just, we just have to make sure that our classes are figured out mm-hmm. or that we, you know, we have to come up with alternative activities for our students. But the other thing is we're still in these mod formats and, and which basically means yeah. our classes are eight weeks long. Right. If, you so if you miss a miss week a day, or two. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah, if you miss a week, I mean, because if, which again makes me think about about single parents out there too, mm-hmm. and how 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 difficult that has to be, uh, where you you really have no choice on who's going to be staying home, and um, yeah. So anyhow, it, it's just been it's an adjustment as a parent to think about how to handle that, and and I mean. Uh, it can it can be again. It can. I think we had a stint there where where we getting our kids were exposed to COVID and never got it. And they were missing four weeks of daycare. And that's, wow. that's just a lot. Yeah. Like two weeks from one kid and two weeks from another kid. And it's just, oh. we have some families uh, that we're connected with here that seem like they have just been in that, those constant cycles of sickness and yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to be insensitive because trust me, I think being exposed to COVID and not getting it uh, is far better, far better than, than <laughs> yeah. situations others have been in where they've got it and it's been real rough. So I, I, I certainly acknowledge that, but uh, so I don't want to say what was me, but you know, it's been something that's been kind of going around our house. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know if I have um, an insight. Do you have an insight here? Maybe, maybe we can. Uh... And maybe we can come up with one together here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think one insight such as it is. (laughs) I think I, I think I say that a lot actually, uh, insight such as it is. I, I think there is something. hmm. So I I'm thinking about, there's something about, and I think maybe you are better at this than, than I am, but I'm noticing the importance of, uh, I don't know, what <laughs> and maybe it feels cliche now, but like saying like to seize the day 
kind of, you know, that there's, um, there's a sense of, I mean, yeah, I think it feels cliche reflecting on, on the death of a friend, uh, of a young friend and, uh, relatively young, you know, and thinking about, yeah, the importance of enjoying the days (laughs) while we have them. Um, and I think also the, the war certainly has that, uh, in my mind, you know, thinking about how you, you don't know how long good things are going to last. And so to, to press in and enjoy them. And I think a temptation for me has been to, and I think, well, I'll get to relax or I'll get to enjoy once I finish with, you know, and then fill in the blank with, you know, whether that's dissertation or, you know, um, I mean, gosh, for so many years it was, uh, you know, when I, well, when I finished with my master's thesis or then when I finished with my doctoral dissertation and, you know, there's, there's always something I can put in that, box of, well, when I'm done with such and such, then I can enjoy. And I think, um, yeah, just feeling reminded to take notice of the good things as they, as they come and not to push them off. I think we've, we decided as a family ourselves that, um, one thing that we really just love doing together, Jill and I particularly love doing together. And I think, I think our youngest, our, I'm sorry, our oldest has picked up on this some too with us, but I mean, we really love traveling together. Mm-hmm. We love experiencing new, new places and new cultures. And even as much as it's not just, um, it, 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 it can cause, I mean, you know, you're the interculturalist, right? So it can, it, it's not always these cross-cultural encounters aren't always, um, easy in right, situations, right. but, but I think they're very, uh, they're just, they're life giving to us in many ways. And so we've just decided and committed to saying, this is something that our family, uh, wants to do together mm-hmm. and we'll just ma- try to make it happen no matter what and we've even prioritized it over a lot of other things, just wanting to take that time. And especially in thinking like you don't know, it's already sobering in some ways, seeing our kids grow up quickly mm-hmm. as I'm sure you're well aware of and thinking, gosh, I don't how many more years are the kids going to be in the house with us or how many more years will they enjoy going on vacations with us? Right, right, right. <laughs> um, hopefully forever. Right. But yeah. Um, and so you think about that. And then on top of that, I've seen friends and, and family members whose health has de- declined very quickly and, and nobody saw it coming, including themselves. And so you just don't know how much right. time you have. And it's important to try to do the things now and, and just think, oh, once we have this in line, then, then we'll do that. Then we'll do the thing that we really want to do it's like that bucket list idea in some ways it's, it is very helpful mm-hmm. in thinking what are the things that I just, that I want, or what are the things we want to experience in life and how do we start making some of them happen now instead of waiting until it's like, you think that you, you've got the, you know, the end on the horizon and you're like, all right, now it looks like I might have a, a year to go, a year to live <laughs> and right. I'm going to try to get them all in. Yeah. Enjoy um, all the things know, now. Yeah. Not, yeah. 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 We'll be back in a moment with the conversation about understanding author intent and biblical writings. As always, you can find more at patreon.com slash profs and rooms. So I think today uh, we're picking back up with your dissertation again at the request of some of our listeners getting into uh, this. And I think this chapter is really interesting chapter two which we'll probably have a few episodes on by the time we get through mm. uh all all of these questions that i had reading it but can you kind of remind us what the overall project is that that you were working on in your dissertation 
Yeah, but basically what I was looking at is whether or not Ephesians challenges Roman imperial ideology and specifically whether Ephesians portrait of Jesus, for the most part, challenges Roman imperial ideology. That's the, that's the gist of it. And then the way that you did that is you actually set up a particular reading of Ephesians. You weren't necessarily saying this is my reading of Ephesians. You're saying this is a reading, right? Um, well, it depends. Uh, so there, what I did is I engaged various readings of Ephesians or, or various readings of Paul that have come from that vantage point. And I tried to point out some of the weaknesses that exist in that. That was part of the first chapter. Mm -hmm. And then when I proposed kind of my own framework for reading Ephesians, that's where I, in chapter two, that's where I'm introducing kind of my reading. So it, it is a way of reading, but it is one that I also am utilizing myself by the time I get to chapter two. Gotcha. But then at the end, you also critique your own reading of it, right? Well, when it comes to my own reading or my own method of reading Ephesians, I don't critique it so much as kind of point out some of its limitations. Uh, gotcha. uh, what okay. I do end up critiquing in the end uh, a bit is I, I critique certain readings of Ephesians that, that don't always just use that, you know, framework, but that are also concluding that Ephesians challenges Roman imperial ideology. I uh, gotcha. So you say, here's a way of reading Ephesians and you're saying this is perhaps a good way to read Ephesians. And then you mm -hmm. look at other readings of Ephesians and including other imperial critical readings and say, uh, okay, here are some issues that I found as I went through the project. Exactly. Yeah. And then in the process, when I say, Hey, I, I try to chapter two, I'm kind of laying out my method for how I'm going to read Ephesians and various, you know, procedures that I'm going to use procedures in the right word we would use in, in the field of study, we'd call it a hermeneutic. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I, I say, basically here's the hermeneutic I'm going to use to interpret Ephesians through this lens. And then in the end, what I do conclude is, well, there are some limitations to this. This can't take us, you know, far in this area or that area, you can, but it, what it does reveal is this, this, and this. Ah, uh, got it. Okay. That's helpful. So, yeah. uh, so, and again, Imperial critical, looking at the question of does Ephesians critique the empire, uh, the Roman empire in particular being in view. Yeah. And this chapter, sorry, uh, my, my chapter two, it, it, it is actually it has sort of that underlying question in that what I, what I did is I was asking that question all along, does Ephesians challenge the Roman empire or Roman imperial ideology? But I, what I found myself having to ask was, well, if anyone were to want to challenge anything, how would they go about doing it? In, 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 in any situation, found, not just in scripture, it, right? In any situation. And, and the answer is, I mean, there's many different ways somebody could challenge an ideology. Like you could say, I'm opposed to this, right? Like you could just yeah. straight out say it. Yep. Yeah. And, and there's gestures you can use, you know, so some things go beyond textual analysis. Like, you know, gestures in, in thinking about a theory of gestures or symbolism, um, you know, semiotics isn't necessarily going to apply to Ephesians in that sense, because we don't have just like hand gestures in, in a text. Mm. So, so what I'm, what I'm thinking about is, hmm, okay, if someone were to, to challenge any sort of ideology, how would they go about doing it in a text? And that's when I started to realize that there are conversations that aren't being had in the field because of the framework that they're coming at it with, their hermeneutic that they're using. Right. So okay. what I end up having to do is propose a hermeneutic that notices things that people aren't noticing in the conversation. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. So, and then we talked about it a little bit last time, but um, you, so you develop in chapter two, this eclectic hermeneutic for the imperial critical reading for an imperial critical reading of Ephesians. Um, what is a hermeneutic? Well, a hermeneutic is, is basically just a, a, a way that we interpret 
So hermeneutics are present every single day of our life in all sorts of ways because we're interpreting things all the time. It could be a symbol we see in a sign. It could be, you know, a gesture or language that we hear. It could be objects. All of those require a hermeneutic. Uh, but, but in biblical studies, what we mean by it is, is what methods are we using? What, what, what procedures and methods are we using to specifically interpret texts and ultimately the Bible? Mm. So a hermeneutic is, is a, is a, a method that you're choosing to use. Well, sometimes people don't know that they're choosing to use it. Sometimes it's kind of implicit, but it's a method that you're using to interpret text in this case. So I think that's one of the things that maybe can be confusing when we talk about a hermeneutic is that, uh, is that often I think we, we end up interpreting without realizing that we're interpreting. Yeah. And we're actually, we're, we're making decisions without knowing we're making decisions. Um, so a, a great example of this, you know, uh, uh, Dan Darko published this book on Ephesians. Um, and, and it's interesting because he basically suggests that an African cosmology can help us to understand like the spiritual powers in Ephesians. Mm. Um, and what's interesting about it is he critiques sort of Western, um, largely Western views of spirits and demons, saying that there are all sorts of decisions are being made um, methodologically that is dismissing those things as fake and unreal um, that are automatically informing the way that we read something like that in Ephesians. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, so what he would say is, well, you, we're actually coming at the text um, from a Western lens. We're, we're having a hermeneutic from the Western world that is making decisions prior to even reading about what's real and what's not real about how we would approach, you know, some of those questions. So before you even get to the text, you have made interpretive decisions without even knowing it. Yeah. Yep. And then, and then he also critiques sort of the, the, the methods of doing this in biblical studies, which in the Western world, I mean, it's not hard to see this in the Western world, just grab any commentary off the shelf on any biblical book. And what you're going to find is that the standard approach to interpreting the Bible, it, especially in scholarly works is going to be to uh, mine the language. What's the Greek word here? What's the Hebrew word here? What's the grammatical relationship between these words? And then you have to relate that to the context in which it was spoken in and all this. And what, what Darko points out, that's in, he says it's interesting when he goes to Africa and there are students of his in Africa who say, no, wait a second, <laughs> like that, that hermeneutic doesn't make any sense to them. Mm. Um, and, and, and the question they raise is, you know, especially as, as many of them, I think are, are not, you know, do, do not have English as their first language. They, they asked, they asked Darko, well, wait a second, do you interpret English text this way too? Oh, interesting. You know, like, yeah. And so they, they thought, well, wait, this is odd because it, why are we treating the Bible this way as if this is the procedure for understanding a, a literature when, when we're not really treating any other literature that way from any other language. Now, that doesn't mean that, I mean, if you don't know English, you're going to have to know some grammar and you're going to have to know some, some word meaning in order to understand English literature. But it's never going to be like a commentary is going to be written on Harry Potter that has taken this procedure that we do for the Bible by just mining it as if that is the absolute key to understanding everything in it. And that's so interesting because I'm in the language learning process right now, again, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, with just and it's so interesting how in some ways my attempt to understand a sentence by understanding each of the words individually can lead me down wrong paths of understanding what it means. Oh, yeah. And and so there's so much that comes from understanding context and understanding who's saying what. And in some ways, it's my lack of fluency that causes me to fixate on the words, right? I wonder... Yeah, and 
And I even wonder, although you would know this better than I, but but you grew up in that tradition in many ways of biblical studies that that kind of teaches that method. I mean, it may not even be an academic sense, but you're probably familiar just with the need to like, you know, examine words and to mm-hmm. go through that. So that, I well, wonder yeah, if that would be word inform. studies. I, oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I certainly am not doing word studies with, you know, with German texts that I'm trying to read at this point. Um, but I... Yeah. I don't know. I think in some ways for me, imagine doing a word study. Could you imagine, I mean, this is the thing it's not that there isn't a place for word studies and biblical studies, but could you imagine doing a word study too? It could be fun, but could you imagine doing a word study out of a Harry Potter, out of Harry Potter? That'd be so weird. Like an English word study. It it, it just, this, the, this, the fact of doing it seems out of place. Like, wait a second. How is that going to help you understand Harry Potter? It seems like, well, you don't understand what it's about if that's the way you're approaching it. I, and I don't mean to say that that's the case for biblical studies, but it's so interesting how unnatural that feels in other contexts. Yes. And that, and I think that's the point. So that's a hermeneutical framework that's saying, if we want to understand this text, the Bible, here's the methods that we need to use to detect the meaning. And oftentimes it's, it's being done at a very low level of grammatical, you know, analysis and language. And this isn't true maybe in churches and it's not always true, um, you know, in the pulpit, but it is definitely true in academic biblical studies mm-hmm. um, and especially academic biblical studies that are coming sort of from, from white, you know, Western and uh, perspectives. And probably especially more from fundamentalist roots. Is that accurate? Um, no, no, uh, it's not. I mean, that it can be accurate, but no, this is across the spectrum theologically. Right? Oh yeah. So you can take a, you can take a biblical commentary series like the Hermeneia series, which is not, I think at all put together by anyone who would be considered fundamentalist or, or conservative theologically. Um, and they're utilizing the exact same methods. So oh, this transcends so theological that. convictions. Yeah. Huh. And so, to be clear, I'm not, I'm not saying that those things can't be helpful, but what I am saying in my work and in this chapter is that, that, that can only get you so far in the question of whether the new Testament challenges the empire. Well, and, and because for the of, most part, those assumptions have been adopted by both critics and proponents of imperial critical readings. And I'm saying that, that that's, we need to move beyond that because that only gets us so far in the conversation. And part of what you're saying also is that, let's at least acknowledge that we've made those interpretive decisions before we come to the text, not because of what the text itself says, but because of what decisions we or our field or our culture or whatever it is, uh, have said, you know, have, have basically led us to ahead of time. And again, not that they're necessarily good or bad, but not knowing that we've made those decisions is problematic. Yeah, exactly. And what I end up proposing is, is some other hermeneutical tools that get us further in the conversation or that reveal things about whether the New Testament and Ephesians in particular is challenging the empire that hasn't been brought into the conversation. But what I'm not saying is that those word meanings and all that are irrelevant. What I'm saying is let's supplement what we've done with that with other hermeneutical tools that haven't been utilized in the conversation. Let's mm-hmm. expand our hermeneutic. Yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, and maybe you've already done this, but can you give any other examples of hermeneutics that you could have used uh, and why they weren't sufficient for the question? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, other examples other than the sort of grammar-based ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, uh, one example I think of a, of a hermeneutic that that causes problems uh, when it comes to these sort of analysis is ones that focus on the biographical data 
of the person who wrote the text. Mm -hmm. And this happens all the time. Like if you have a study Bible and you open up your study Bible, say to Luke's gospel, most of the time, the study Bible information is going to begin with who's the author. And they're going to give you all this data on who the author is. And if if anybody's read Luke, they probably would know um, from their study Bible that Luke is often identified as a doctor. Mm -hmm. Um, So what you'll do is you'll get all this information that's plugged in. Oh, here's what you need to know about the author. And and then people assume that that data is actually necessary for understanding the text. But we've never actually paused to think, what do we actually need to know about somebody to understand what they've written? So we have not stopped to ask that question before we kind of implicitly answer it by gathering that information. Yeah. Not just gathering it, but then throwing it on as the very first paragraph of our study Bibles, as if it's like, you've got readers of the Bible who've who've never read these texts before. And they're like, Oh, well, before I go anywhere else, I better understand about the biography of this guy, Luke. And what's ironic about that too, of course, is that Luke never even mentions himself in the gospel. So we're importing in all this data on somebody who doesn't even identify themselves as Luke anywhere. (laughs) So, so we're making these decisions, you know, what matters for understanding the text? Well, word meaning matters, the grammatical relationships matter, the biography of the author matters. And those are all the, the tools, the hermeneutics that we're using. And what I'm saying is, well, that's fine. There, there's some benefits to that, but this has limited the conversation when it comes to analyzing whether something like Ephesians challenges the Roman empire. So I'm, I'm curious too, I'm just thinking about the biographical hermeneutic as, as one of the options I'm thinking. It seems like, okay, so if you apply that to Asaph or the sons of Korah, when you're reading the Psalms, it would be Mm -hmm. this idea that taken to an extreme, I guess it would be to say this Psalm can't mean anything unless I know who those characters are, who those figures are, who those authors are, right? Yeah. And that puts us in a major conundrum because how many biblical texts don't mention the name of their author? Right. Including many, like including every gospel, (laughs) every gospel, not a single gospel mentions the author in the text with maybe the exception of John's gospel. John never mentions himself as John, but we get this disciple whom Jesus loved. And the, the bottom line is this, it's interesting that we're putting so much stock in the biography of the author when the authors sometimes don't even identify themselves. Mm. And, and we might have good reason to say, yeah, we think the guy named Matthew, who's Jesus's disciple wrote this gospel. But in the case of Hebrews, we really have almost no clue. And so, so if, if it were a requirement to understand the biography of the author, to understand literature, we wouldn't only just have a problem with Hebrews. We'd have a problem with several Old Testament texts and Psalms. And to be frank, we'd have a problem with every other bit of literature we read in the modern world, because mm-hmm. I'm not sure of many people who think, ah, there's this really interesting novel out. Well, well, before I read it, I better go on Wikipedia and check the author and, and read their history. I mean, some we, we for sure do, do right? But it's also some interesting. Do, so yeah. this, this gets very much into the first tool that you use, which is the difference between the implied author and the empirical author. And, yeah. and maybe, maybe that would be, and, and I think it's probably important to clarify real quick that empirical here does not mean empire in the sense of, uh, of, you know, does Ephesians critique empire? Uh, Can you maybe define these terms implied author and empirical author? Yeah. an empirical with an E empirical, it's not empire. And it's also not empiricism as like a scientific method implied and empirical authors. The difference is this, the empirical author is like the historical flesh and blood person. So, you know, you've written books. Mm -hmm. Um, You're the empirical author, Stephen Jones, you were born in this city. You lived this life. You ate this for breakfast. You have all these ideas that go through your head. You have this many kids and a spouse and you got married on this date. Um, That's the empirical person. 
Stephen Jones. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the empirical author. So if we're looking at the empirical author of say Ephesians, well, word one is Paul. And we start saying, hmm, well, who's Paul? And we take Acts and we take everything that we know from Paul. We import that data in. So that's the empirical author. And now we're, we're collecting data about that person from texts. So not empirical in the scientific sense, as if it's like coming from, you know, uh, uh, scientific data as we would count it. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we're saying is who is the historical flesh and blood person? The implied author though is, is different. The implied author is the author. Uh, different isn't even the right word. The implied author is what we can discern about the person who wrote the work from the work itself. Uh, okay. Um, so, so, so we've got your books and we might decide before reading them that we sit down and we do all this mining of data on your life, or we read the text and we say, what do we know about who Stephen Jones is or his perspectives from what he's writing? And in some of my books, I introduce myself to greater, to a greater extent than in others, like in what, because in the book on transitions, I feel like it's important to me anyway, to communicate to the reader, here's why I'm writing this. Here's my experience. But even that is only a limited window into the empirical person. Yeah. And the truth is, is that's where it's not that empirical. It's not that you either have an empirical author or an implied author. These two often come together in many ways, because sometimes you get an empirical sense of who a person is by reading their work and by what they reveal about themselves in their work. But the question I'm interested in isn't who's the biographical person or who's the person revealed in the text. Mm -hmm. The question is what's important for interpreting the text. Interesting. That's the question. So, so what we often assume, so Luke's gospel is a great example of this. What we do, we've had this one little comment from Paul in Colossians that says that Luke is a doctor. That's it. By the way, we have no other records of Luke's life other than what he depicts of himself in Acts. Um, we get very few mentions of him in the New Testament, and we don't have a lot of outside data of Luke's life from the first century. So, so what's interesting is we get this little comment about Luke the doctor. We import it into reading Luke, and then all of a sudden we start seeing the medical doctor in the text. Mm. So we've imported that in. Uh, the problem is, is that no one is p- often paused to ask the question, do we need Dr. Luke in order to understand Luke's gospel? Um, or it might the implied author, the author that's revealed through the text, actually want us to understand other things about himself so, than that he was a doctor. So it sounds like you're saying a fixation on the empirical author could actually obscure the implied author. Is that right? Yeah. And here, here's the great example from Luke is that oftentimes people see the healing stories that G- Jesus heals people in Luke and they'll say, well, of course, Luke is interested in that. He's a doctor. Mm-hmm. And, and so they, they interpret the reason for. And, and I think I've heard something similar about the passion narrative too, right? Oh yeah. And especially the, the comment that Luke makes of Jesus in the garden as, as if he's, he's sweating so profusely, it's as if he's sweating blood, Luke says. And people will say, oh, wow, Luke's making a medical diagnosis here, you know, of Jesus basically having this medical condition where he's suffering so much that blood's coming out. And Luke knows this because he's a doctor. Now, now, the reason why I find all this insufficient, in other words, we're importing in all this data about this person who we, this historical person, Luke, and who we believe Luke is, is that there might actually be other reasons why 
Luke includes those stories and it might not have anything to do with him being a doctor. Mm. So if we let the implied author speak, the author that comes through the text, we might find that, oh, actually the author is interested in these healing stories, not because they're a doctor, but because they believe that it's the fulfillment of the messianic age, that the, the great messianic era has arrived and that the prophets had been speaking of this for a long time. So you see there's two different interpretations. Either one is saying, ooh, Dr. Luke is very interested in these healing stories and that's why they're there because he's a doctor. Or it could be Dr. Luke or, or just the author wanting to, to give healing stories for a different reason. Now, now they, they could be both and in some ways, right? But the problem is, is that the one, the Dr. Luke can really limit our interpretive horizons mm. <laughs> in terms of what we think the doc or what we think that the author is doing in light of their profession. Right. I say this all the time, you know, you could, you could, you know, you could do all this biographical data on me and you can go, Ooh, wow, this guy has a PhD in new Testament. And then all of a sudden everything that I write, you're going to read through the lens of me being a PhD in New Testament. <laughs> so what happens every if I'm writing for, write or... <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what happens if I'm tweeting about my fantasy football team? <laughs> you know, that really, I, I, yeah, I'm still a New Testament PhD, but I'm not writing from that vantage point. Well, I, I just figured that when you were writing about the Detroit lions, it's because you were focused on, you know, the lion from the, uh, the tribe. Yeah. Is there a lion in Revelation? <laughs> yeah, yeah, there, there is. We go. Yeah. The lion from the tribe of Judah. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. So, so the, the question of implied empirical author isn't who is the author. The question is, is what do we need to know about the author to understand their work? And so this, this, this comes into the equation and let me, let me just use an example of this. I think that would be even more helpful. And this is, this comes from movies because if we were to treat movies the same way we treat biblical texts, yeah. and if we were to say, well, who, who's the author of the film, mm -hmm. And what do we need to know about their biography to, to understand the film? It would be a very problematic process because um, take, for example, you know, who is the author of, of the Disney film Luca? Well, well, to be honest, I don't even know the name of the director or the script writer. And I think our natural inclination would be to say, well, it's probably the, the script writer. They're the author. They wrote it. I mean, this is really messy though, right? Because there's so many people that are actually communicating something through the text of the movie. Yeah. The problem is with films, there are multiple authors. Right. I, I mean, everyone's contributing to, to conveying meaning in the film. Everyone, meaning the director, the script writer, the actors, the, the photographer, the, you know, the cinematographers, they're all contributing. I mean, there are even times where they'll be writing you know, there'll be words on a script that an actor will deliver and they'll deliver it in such a way that it will change the meaning mm -hmm. or convey a meaning differently than what the script writer intends. And so the actor becomes an author. Yeah. Actor becomes a contributor yeah, to the work and an author. It's so here's what I'm meaning by this. Like if we were to say, well, Hey, you can't watch a movie and understand what the movie's conveying without mining the author's, you know, biography, then the question emerges, well, who, who's the author of the film? Do we do that with the director? Do we do it with Brad Pitt? You know, do, who, who do we do it with? And someone might say, well, well, that's fine and all when it comes to a movie, but the biblical text is much simpler than that because we get the name of a single, single person often attached. And so it's just an easier process. Uh, but again, it's not so much a matter of whether we can decide who the author is and if it's just one person, but what's relevant about that person or actually understanding the meaning of their work. Mm. And, and this is, this is why implied is so important. When you, when you watch a film, there may be many people that contributed to, to conveying meaning, but there is this overarching meaning that's conveyed through the, the totality of the film. There's an implied author that emerges that is like giving points and, and making jokes and you get it. 
so, so that that's where I think we, we can take a similar procedure when we look at the biblical text without getting overly caught up in who the historical person is. So, so this partly becomes important in your exercise of reading Ephesians. Like one of the reasons that it becomes important is because there is some dispute of who the author of Ephesians is. Yeah. There's, there's, there's two reasons this is important for my project. If I, if I, uh, if I focused too much on who the empirical person Paul was in order to understand Ephesians, well, then I'm going to have many objectors in my field who are going to say, but we don't think Paul wrote it. And so if, if your reading was dependent on empirical Paul, then those folks would reject your reading. Yep, exactly. Yep. On those so that, that's one of, alone. Yeah. So there's pragmatic reasons in some ways because I wanted the conversation to be expanded. I didn't mm. want those who dismiss Paul as the author. And there's various reasons why people do this, why they dismiss Paul as the author. And it's not necessarily, as some our listeners might assume, it's not necessarily because they have a low view of the Bible and think, oh, the Bible can't be trusted. There's, there's all sorts of reasons why people with Ephesians specifically say, oh, we don't think that Paul actually wrote this. But, but what I wanted to do is, is say, well, that's okay. We don't need to actually focus on this, this empirical person, Paul, to understand this work anyways. Mm-hmm. So it was a pragmatic move in that sense. Um, but in, in, my, in my dissertation, I think there would be some question that, that um, well, hey, wait a second. We know something about Paul and we know something about the way that he interacted with the empire. And the reason is, is because we have something like Acts, mm. the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. So, so here's what will happen is that people will say, okay, well, if Paul did write Ephesians, Ephesians can't be against the empire because Paul wasn't against the empire. Based because look on. at how Paul interacts with empire and acts. Yep. So this is where I, and then I get, then again, the question I'm asking is, well, then do we let, do we let the external data about this, this historical person drive our interpretation of Ephesians before we've even ah, gotten to it? So, well, there's this principle of using scripture to interpret scripture, but it sounds like maybe you're saying that we could also use scripture to obscure scripture. Yeah. Not just that, but we can, we can import in data about the person, the historical person that isn't relevant for interpreting their work. Just like reading your tweets about fantasy football, it's really not necessary yeah. or even helpful to know that you're a New Testament scholar. Yeah, some objections about Ephesians being anti-imperial or rather not being anti-imperial are coming from people who believe Paul wrote it, but they said Paul wouldn't do that. Mm. But you see, what's interesting about this is we could have said the same thing about Bonhoeffer. Wait, wait, wait. We know Bonhoeffer's a pacifist. Mm. He would never, he would never try to, this is the problem. We're, we're importing in biographical data about the person that may or may not be relevant for actually understanding their work. So how do you understand Bonhoeffer's ethics if he's a pacifist? Because it doesn't seem to work as, as he seems to be working through justifications of his participation in the plot to assassinate the leader of his country. Which was Hitler, just to, <laughs> for clarity, anybody not yeah, familiar. Yeah, which was Hitler. <laughs> not, not, just, not just he's a, yeah, some renegade trying to assassinate <laughs> people. Uh, but, but you see, what I would say is that, well, we know biographically that Bonhoeffer was a pacifist, but that, that actually isn't relevant data entirely in order to interpret his ethics, other What's than it? that it provides some interesting background to say, ooh, he may have changed his mind or right. he, may be, he may be in a conundrum. Mm. Oh man, that's interesting. So yeah, 
So your first step in establishing this eclectic hermeneutic is to say there is a decision being made about the authorship of the letter. And it's more important that we focus on the implied author than trying to get to some empirical Paul. Yep. Yeah. Let's understand the work from the perspective that the work is, 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 is being written from before we start to import in outside data about who this historical person might've been. Mm. That's super interesting. And then interesting. we can ask questions about how, how the two might relate. Yeah. You know, I, I don't have any strong reasons myself for questioning that Paul was the author, but that doesn't necessarily mean that even if Paul was, you know, respectful of the empire in other places that he might not have reason to challenge them here. You know what that reminds me of? I You'll have to help me tell the story and then tell me whether or not I'm right to apply it here. But I'm remembering Mm. you talking about going to a conference where a speaker got up and just railed against this other author and like picked apart their work. And they're like, this is so bad. And then at the end revealed that they were the author of that work. Yeah, exactly. This, and that was classic, classically Richard Hayes, a New Testament scholar uh, who was, who was given a presentation over at Luther Seminary here in St. Paul. Yeah. He got up and he just slammed, you know, he just, he hammered on this view of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. And and he was just going to task on it. And about 10 minutes in, he says, and and that author was Richard Hayes. (laughs) So we got this conundrum (laughs) where you've got the empirical person who's the same individual Mm. who wrote the original article, but who is now challenging it because his viewpoint has changed. But here's the deal. Would you want to import in what you know about the modern Richard Hayes to understand Hayes's work on Hebrews 10 years ago? Mm. No, because you need the implied author because that Hayes believes something different than this one. Well, I mean, could so you that's, say that's what we're talking could you about? Say if yeah. you knew the empirical, who the empirical Hayes was 10 years earlier that you'd be more accurate? Um, possibly, but it depends on what empirical information or what, what, I mean, what data about the empirical individual you think is relevant. So this is because you might say, Oh, I, I happen to find out that Richard Hayes really loves scrambled eggs for breakfast. <laughs> well, that's important, but is it, I mean, you know what I mean? Well, in other words, like, yeah, that's empirical data, but like, is it going to help you to interpret his, his article? So, so then part Th- of the that's problem a silly example, like that you might not have particularly for, for dealing with ancient texts, uh, you might not have access to good empirical information or enough or the right empirical information or the empirical information from the correct 10 year window to understand that particular letter. Is is that right? So, so then understanding the author as the author presents themselves, uh, in their work or who, yeah, what is, what is conveyed by the implied author in the text really it gives you a window into something that may be more important than what you can accomplish by importing that author. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and another, another thing that happens with Paul is people will say, well, we already know what Paul thinks about empire. Like go to Romans 13. Mm. And what he says there is that, well, but, but the churches in Rome need to, need to obey or submit to the governing authorities. So like clearly he believes that the authorities are instituted by God. And and so what people say is, well, that's the final word on Paul and empire. So why are you bothering with these silly interpretations that are suggesting that Paul's writings are challenging the empire? So that gets into, there's some speech act stuff that gets into that. We'll, we'll get into that in the next segment here. 
uh, which I, I think will be a lot of fun. But um, let's take a, a little break. And then in the next segment, we'll talk about speech act theory. I think that'll be fun. This brings the first part of our second series on Justin's dissertation to a close. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Professors in Rooms Getting Coffee. Reed Peters is a recognized patron of the show. As always, you can join us at patreon.com slash profs and rooms for more conversation and bonus content. We hope you can join us for coffee again next time.